Good morning, Grace family. Good to see you all. Would you please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 as we conclude our series this morning on answering the question, what is man? Asking David's question in Psalm 8, what is man? And we've been seeking to answer that question first by affirming that we are created. Human beings are created by God, by a perfect, wise, just, holy, all-knowing, all-powerful God. And then we talked about being made in his image, more like him than anything else that is, to represent him and glorify him with our lives. And we answer to him in utter dependence on him. And then last week, we talked about the importance of appreciating the fact that we're body and soul made by God and talked about some of the implications that that has. And this morning, we conclude by talking about being male and female, a very important topic today. And again, our anchor passage through this series has been here in Genesis 1, beginning at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. That singular noun, Adam, translated man in your English Bible, is intended to image the creator. In the image of God, he created him. And then we've got a singular pronoun there, referring back to the singular noun, Adam. But then it says, male and female, he created them. So right here in the creation of humanity, we have a unity, just like Mindy was saying. Mindy's an excellent teacher. I'm always so grateful for what she brings us there, as well as the others who do children's chat for us. But as she was saying, that there is a unity, an equality in our humanity, but an intentional God-created distinction in who we are as male and female. A unity and the plurality. A unity without uniformity. An equality without sameness. Something we find in God, just like Mindy was saying as well. And then he concludes the creation story in verse 31 by saying, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. What we need to realize here is that God is the creator of everything that is, and he does it with wise, divine intention. He's the sovereign, loving, wise creator who makes everything, including humanity as male and female, with purpose, with intention. There's this idea that the concept of gender is just culturally created. It's certainly culturally understood and interpreted, but not created. God does that. We don't do that. And we don't get to determine what we are as human beings and are intended to be and how we are fulfilling that intention or not. God determines that. And this flies in the face of so much contemporary thinking today. God does this. He does it intentionally. He does it purposefully. And Jesus understands this, believes, and teaches this as well. If you turn to Matthew chapter 19, we see Jesus 
asked a question in Matthew 19 about divorce. And instead of just going to the ethical question and answer, he goes right back to Genesis 1 and reminds them of where it all started. So as he's asked a question about divorce to get him in trouble by the Pharisees, this is how he answers in Matthew 19. He answered, have you not read, which is a kind of insulting thing to say to religious leaders, have you not read the Bible? That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Do you realize how much is packed into these couple of verses here in regard to Jesus' understanding of reality? The first thing we see is his understanding of the Bible. Jesus believes the Bible, and that's where he goes to answer questions over and over again. As his pattern, he goes to the scriptures. He believes it is the authority to answering all the questions we have about life of any import. And so Jesus believes the Bible is the word of God, and it's the source of his authority as he answers these questions. And then we see Jesus believes the creation account in Genesis, and we see Jesus believes that God created humans male and female for a purpose. And here we see Jesus' understanding of marriage. And then he eventually gets to answer their question about divorce. But now without going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 to ground his answer. So if you follow Christ, you need to also believe and follow and teach his belief in the Bible. His belief in creation. His belief in male and female. His belief in marriage as a man and a woman married for life and his understanding of divorce. You don't get to be a Jesus follower and disregard Jesus' beliefs and teachings that he taught and commanded. And so Jesus believes this and the apostles believe this. They followed the ways of Genesis chapter 1. And this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. You can turn there. Romans 1 puts it this way. Speaking of sin in its core definition, this is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, 24. Therefore, God gave them up, speaking of human beings in our sin, all of us, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And here's the best definition of human rebellion and what we call sin you'll ever find. They gave them up... Uh, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is fascinating. Paul is wanting the Romans and us this morning to understand the nature of sin. And he says it's an exchange of God's glory for the glory of the creature. And then he thinks, and by the leading of the Spirit says, I need to give the Romans and those in La Mirada an illustration of this great exchange of God's glory for creature glory. And he says, homosexuality. That, that's the, the image I'll give so they understand what, what the exchange of God's glory for creature glory looks like. The ignoring of God's wonderful intention and in creation 
and homosexual actions is what he highlights here. And I want you to notice, he says, they gave up what is natural for what is unnatural. This is very important for us because we tend to define in our culture natural what comes naturally to us. What comes most easily to us, what, what feels natural and seems natural based on my desires and, and things I want and things I like. But that's not how God defines nature. Nature's defined here as God's design, what God intended in this. And we all need to acknowledge there's a complexity to our existence as human beings made in God's image, but who are fallen. And that's what we've had to recognize every step along the way in this series, that God created with beauty and intention and wisdom, but it gets all messed up. And whatever that sin ends up looking like in the details, it's a diversion from God's design. I mean, one of the sins I've battled my whole life is, is anger, especially in response to physical pain. I, I have this instinctive response when I'm physically hurt, especially, to be angry, to hit things, to ah, be mad about that. I have never had the thought when I'm injured, someone come and hold me. I've always had the thought, I need to hit something. I don't know why. I can't explain this. I, I remember uh, my mother told me one time, I was born that way. She says, as a toddler, if, if I'd get hurt, I'd get angry. It's, it's a little kid. I remember I was playing basketball one time over Biola not long after I got here. And I was playing basketball, actually, it sounds like the beginning of a bad joke, with a philosophy professor, a psychology professor, and an Old Testament professor. Greg Tanelzoff. Chris Grace and Dave Talley. And I was playing basketball and I rolled my ankle really badly. And I got really angry and I couldn't get up right away. So I rolled over to that pad behind the hoop and I just start wailing on it. Wailing on this pad behind the hoop. Kind of hurt my hand in the process. And then like a crazed animal, I got up and I hopped through the door into the locker room, slammed a few locker doors that were open and then started to calm down and lay down. Now my friends were terrified of this and they waited a while and finally came in to see how I was doing. And by that time, I had calmed down and I said, guys, I'm sorry about that response. I don't know what it is. I've always responded that way when, when I've experienced physical pain. And it was fascinating because the psychology professor, Chris Grace, he said, Eric, I think people are just wired uh, neurologically, psychologically, to respond to pain in different ways. My, like my, my son came out of the womb experiencing the pain of birth saying, hold me. And my daughter came out just, ah, just angry about it. And he said, I think we're wired differently. And then I said, I kind of like that way of thinking. And then, and then the philosophy prof said, Eric, I know you well enough to know how much you hate sin and hate the fall. And pain's a result of the fall. So I think it's actually a pretty theologically accurate response to have pay, that anger. We should be angry at sin and its effects. And I thought, I really like that description. And then my friend Dave Talley, an Old Testament prophet, said, Eric, it's sin. You need to repent. That was his answer. And here's the truth. They're all right, right? They're all right about that. It's really natural for me to respond this way. And part of it's how I'm wired and part of it's experiences I've had and, and, and part of it's sin. And it's all woven together and pretty complex and at times just about impossible to un unwind it all and figure it all out. So we can't lose the simplicity in all of this. In the midst of recognizing the complexity of all of it, 
in realizing that sometimes what feels very natural and comes very natural is not natural according to God's design. Now, before we dive into uh, to this, I, I, I have a few qualifications I want to make. The first is, I have actually eight. You ready? Eight qualifications, three points, and one application. Here we go. You ready? I had a 16-point sermon on, for, on third John once, but this is shorter than that. Here we go. You ready? Here are the assumptions I'm working from. Human depravity is real and deep, and sin has affected everything about every one of us. So there's no self-righteousness in this, no sinful anger, but humble, gracious truth-telling. That's what I'm trying to do this morning. No self-righteousness. I'm not a hater, I promise. Sometimes I, I start to become one when people call me one. Even though I don't think I am. People say, why are you so angry with your Christian ethics? I'm, not, I'm really, I'm not angry. I, I identify completely with any sinner. No, you're angry. You've got to be angry if you believe that. I'm not, you're actually making me angry by accusing me of being angry when I'm not. And see that it's self-fulfilling there. And, and that's a problem. But I, I want to do this humbly with no self-righteousness, but with truth-telling at the same time. Two, my assumption is Jesus is the only answer for how messed up we all are. He's the only answer. Three, as Christians, we cannot be whiners about how bad things are. I'm very concerned about this. Things are bad. Things are increasingly bad. But there are plenty of good things, and God's always working for his glory and our good. And grieving over immorality is right, especially when it's in the church. But we need to move beyond just complaining and lament. Four, I'm not longing for some golden age of Christianity that we need to go back to, some virtue in society, but I'm longing for Christ-exalting gospel advance in the world so that people come to know Jesus as Savior regardless of what society we're talking about or the condition of that society. Here's how Carl Truman puts it. In terms of positive action, lamentation live offers little and delivers less. We just stay in complaining and lamenting, we're not going to do anything helpful. As for the notion of some lost golden age, it's, Truman goes on, it's, it is truly very hard for any competent historian to be nostalgic. And he lists all, every age has all kinds of problems, right? Every age has its darkness and its dangers. He says the task of the Christian is not to whine about the moment, in which he or she lives, but to understand its problems and respond appropriately to them. We need to grieve, we need to lament, but we don't need to whine. And we need to be hopeful and constructive and active in the midst of this as people of hope and cheerfulness, even though the days indeed are evil, as the Bible says. Five, let's give the best examples of the ideas we oppose, not just extreme versions. Six, critiquing ideas and cultural moral uh, revolution versus individuals. What do I mean by that? I, I want us to be very careful here at Grace to recognize destructive, God-dishonoring, human-devaluing ideas that are advancing in our day, but be tender and compassionate and sensitive and listen well to individuals who are in this very confused time. I know we're all messed up, and we're all messed up sexually in, so, in many ways. Every one of us. 
None of us is the project. We're all the project that God's working out. And so I, I want to tell you, I know, I have talked to some of you about my struggles, your struggles, to many of you about these things. And we're all in this together. And I know, speaking from experience, in the way I have been treated in my sin and the way I've seen other people treated here at Grace in their sin, this is a place of wonderful grace and wonderful patience and willingness to walk with one another in all of it. If you're confused, if you failed, if you're actually celebrating something that the Bible this morning you see is, is called sin, well, we're in this together. This is a place to talk about these things and apply the gospel to these things. So although we critique ideas and cultural movements and moral revolutions, we love people with tenderness and compassion and grace. Two more qualifications. As evangelicals, as those who believe the Bible's the word of God and the gospel's the answer, we believe the Bible is the standard for everything. Not the cultural norms, not our experiences, not our intuitions, not being on the right side of history, but the Bible. And that means in biblical categories of gender, and it also means what, what Mindy was just talking about, we don't apply standards of male and female that the Bible says nothing about, like hobbies and personality types and, and the colors you like or the movies you like. I, I am a, I, if you gave me a choice between what's called a guy movie and a, a Woman movie, I'll choose the woman movie every time. Give me Pride and Prejudice over Fast and Furious any day of the week. Question my manhood if you'd like, but the Bible says nothing about that. And, and if you don't like what I'm saying this morning, what Christians teach, please just ask the question. Are they haters? Or are they just really trying to get the Bible right? Because that's what we're doing. We're just trying to get the Bible right. In, in many ways, it'd be so much easier to not try to do that in this culture. But easy is not the choice we have before us. And finally, it's the God who inspires Scripture that's our creator who knows what's best for us. Which means we translate biblical truth into our culture, but we don't transform it by our culture. And we interpret all our experiences through the lens of God's design and purpose for everything that we find in his word. And so, we need to realize, though, what we're up against, as many of you do. Uh, just in the last several weeks, and some of these things this week, it is astounding what's been happening in this question about male and female. In her book, uh, Abigail Schreier writes, her book, Ir Irreversible Damage, the Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. She talks about the massive rise in especially young girls who are considering themselves boys or men. There is a 4,400% rise in gender dysphoria in teenage girls in the UK. There's a quadrupling of surgeries for girls transitioning to boys. And this is, she says, the result of social pressure and celebration of transitioning from your gender to another. And, and majorly influential people and even physicians are saying you can't really know if you're a man or a woman until you try the other one. Which includes a girl taking testosterone and then what she feels uh, more energy and confident and strong because that's what testosterone does. And she says this must what I what I am. And these girls are changing in groups together. 
just this week, a bill was introduced for passage that requires a major fine for retailers who are going to have different boy and girl sections for toys and clothes. The first day of the opening of the new Congress, Democratic Speaker Nancy Pelosi came up with new rules for written and spoken language. And she said, this will be the most inclusive administration in history. And that means there will be no gender identities in our language. So no longer in written and spoken language can you use the terms father or mother or son or daughter or brother or sister or uncle or aunt or first cousin, nephew, niece, husband, wife, father-in-law, mother-in-law, son-in-law, daughter-in-law. They all have to go. And rather parent, child, sibling, parents, sibling. First cousin, sibling's child, that's your niece or your nephew, but you can't say that anymore. A parent-in-law, a child-in-law, a sibling-in-law, step-parent, step-child, sidestepping half-sibling or grandchild. And these are the people who love diversity, but now we've just got one kind of humanity, not male and female. The, direct, the proposed director of health and human services, uh, who is a man who is considers himself a woman, Rachel Levine, who will be in charge of all the health of the nation, does not believe male and female are objective categories and advocates puberty blockers and amputations for children, even very young children. On our president's first day in office, he signed an executive order making sure that men are allowed to play women's sports in the country. The first day. And now wants to pass the Equality Act, which will put major pressure on religious groups not to hold to differences between men and women. I could go on and on, but that will suffice. And this, among those who say they are the champions of science, and whether it's the abortion issue or this issue, this has nothing to do with science. This has everything to do with cultural shifts that are going on. So let me bring up a scientist. Doug, would you give us Doug's bio minute and help us think about this issue from the perspective of science as we see these things coming about in our time. Doug is a, he spent his whole adult life thinking about biology and the design of creation. So Doug's gonna take a minute or two or three or four and help us think about this a little bit. I'm gonna need 20 if that's okay, Eric, no. So as we think about how the events of Genesis 3 have impacted Genesis 127, we know there's two bad things that came out of Genesis 3, right? There's our fallenness, which is very much an us thing. And there's the curse, which is a God thing. And so it's reasonable for us to ask as believers, we know that our fallenness touches Genesis 127 and that there's pushback against our maleness and femaleness and all kinds of distortion of what we are as male and female. But it's reasonable for us to ask whether the curse itself has touched our maleness and femaleness as described in Genesis 1.27. And there's a tendency in this day and age to sort of exaggerate the extent to which um, genetic um, abnormalities are normal to sort of normalize abnormalities and to exaggerate the extent to which they affect our maleness and femaleness biologically. So we're talking just about biological male and femaleness. So I wanted to give some context for understanding this because you may come across some, some exaggerations here. The first thing is the CDC keeps uh, a list and statistics on birth defects, human birth defects. 
and they consider them to be common if they occur in one or more newborns per 10,000. And there's a list of about 100 of these, and they keep ongoing statistics to track these. None of those common birth defects affect whether we're born a boy or a girl. You'd have to go to much, much more rare um, birth issues for that. And there are some genetic issues that affect our development as male and female. But not only are these extremely rare, extraordinarily rare, they usually um, do not affect whether the baby is unambiguously male or female. So let me give an example. You may have heard of this. It's called androgen insensitivity syndrome, AIS. It affects about three babies in 100,000, so extremely rare. It is a case where baby gets, we all get an X chromosome from mom. If we get a Y chromosome from dad, we're destined to be male normally. If we get an X chromosome from dad, we're, we're destined to be female. But in this case, if there's a break in the gene that senses testosterone, you can, the baby can receive a Y chromosome from dad, but because the body doesn't recognize testosterone, the baby develops as a female. So it's a genetic abnormality that says, okay, there's a Y chromosome, this should be a boy, but because of the abnormality, the baby develops as a female. But in this case, the baby is unambiguously female, grows up as a girl, grows up as a woman, she'll be infertile, but there's no ambiguity as to whether this is a male or female. That's, an, that's, that's one of the more common examples of how the curse has touched our maleness and females, femaleness. And the bottom line is even through the effects of the curse, we are distinctly male and female. Thanks, Doug. Thank you, Doug. Love that man. Well, I think it's important to realize that the issue in our society, the confusion in our society has deeper foundations in the way we just think about reality than just this issue of male and female. And I, I recommended Nancy Piercy's book last week, uh, Love Thy Body, and I just as strongly recommend The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman that just came out. This book is incredibly important. And let me just read a little section in the beginning to you here in the introduction. This is what Carl says. The origin in this book lies in my curiosity about how and why a particular statement has come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful. Here's the statement. I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. My grandfather died in 1994, less than 30 years ago. And yet, he had, uh, had he ever heard that sentence uttered in his presence, I have little doubt he would have burst out laughing and considered it a piece of incoherent gibberish. And yet today, it is a sentence that many in our society regard not only as meaningful, but so significant that to deny it or question it in some way is to reveal oneself as stupid, immoral, or subject to yet another irrational phobia. And he, said that, he goes on and says, this isn't just those in the academy. This, these are ordinary folks who think and talk this way now. He goes on, and yet that sentence carries with it a world of assumptions about reality. It touches on the connection between the mind and the body. Given the priority it grants to inner conviction over biological reality, it separates gender from sex. 
given that it drives a wedge between chromosomes and how society defines being a man or a woman. And it is political connection to homosexuality and lesbianism via the LGBTQ plus movement. It rests on notions of civil rights and individual liberty. In short, to move from the commonplace thinking of my grandfather's world to that of today demands a host of key shifts in popular beliefs in these and other areas. The sexual revolution, he goes on, is simply one manifestation of a larger revolution of the self that has taken place in the West. And it is only as we can come to understand that wider context that we can truly understand the dynamics of the sexual politics that now dominate culture. He concludes in my, section, in my quote this way, the behaviors that characterize the sexual revolution are not unprecedented, homosexuality, pornography, sex outside of marriage, for example, They've been perennial throughout human history. What marks the modern sexual revolution out as distinctive is the way it has normalized these and other sexual phenomena. So sin is nothing new. Living outside of God's design is nothing new. We all struggle with it in all kinds of ways. Human history is replete with that. But we need to realize that there is a fundamental assumption about reality that's leading to these ways of thinking that would have been considered completely incoherent just a decade or two ago. And so we need to realize that there are fundamental ways of thinking. And how I would phrase it is there is a hyper-validation of immediate subjective personal experience. As a, as a creator of reality, and when we preach through our, our Proverbs series, we said that wisdom is conforming our lives to the reality as God has made it, not trying to conform reality to our lives. So here are my three points. God made us male and female for his glory, for our joy, and for the sake of the gospel. It's really important. It's not just about having homes that work or families that are healthy or societies that are healthy, although it's those things. It's for the glory of God. God makes us in his own image and we don't get to the very goodness of creation until we get to the female and femaleness of humanity. And the equality and the distinction within God himself that Mindy was talking about is reflected in a humanity that's equally human as male and female, but wonderfully distinct as male and female. God saw everything he made and it was very good. And 1 Corinthians eleven three 3 says, we see in husband and wife something of the very nature of God himself. And so we're to image God in our existence, and we do that as men and women. And when we try to mute that, or disregard that, or get rid of that, we are affecting not just our lives, but the glory of God. Two, God makes us male and female for our joy. God creates us, and we're told in 1 Timothy 4, he does everything good. And therefore, nothing is to be rejected if it's to be received with thanksgiving. We need to not reject male and female, but receive it with thanksgiving and enjoy it and celebrate it. And if you consider yourself a feminist, and I, I think there's a kind of Christian feminism that champions women, realizing how terribly they've been often treated throughout human history. But you can't be a feminist if you can't define a woman. You can't be pro-woman if you can't even define what you're pro about. Once you add the T to the LGBT, actually L, G, and B are meaningless now. 
And there's actually a lot of discussion within the LGBTQ plus community about these issues. You can't even have the other categories if these categories don't even have any objective meaning. But it's for our joy. And when we lose the glory of God as the goal of our lives in being men and women, we lose the joy he intends for us to have, the God who provides us with everything to enjoy. So we're male and female for his glory. We're male and female for our joy, fearfully and wonderfully made as not just humans, but men and women to the glory of God. And finally, we are male and female for the sake of the gospel. In our unity and distinction, especially highlighted in the marriage context, but not exclusive to that. We're men and women. Jesus was single and his manhood was fully expressed. And we don't wait around to be married to express our manhood and womanhood. But the Bible says when it's highlighted beautifully in marriage, as it says in Ephesians 5, we see something of the mystery of Christ and the church. Male and female shows us God's work in a way where we see the gospel displayed in men and women in relationship with each other. And if you read the context of passages that talk about men and women in relationship, like 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Peter 2, and read that in context, you'll see that it's not just about men and women or husbands and wives. It's about the advance of the gospel. That what? They may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So these commands for the way men and women should relate to each other are so that people will see our lives and be drawn to the Savior and on the day of judgment be able to stand complete in Christ. And so to disregard God's intention for gender equality, for gender equality, Uh, equality in our full humanity is to deny God's good design. But to deny God's good design in the gender distinction he's created us to have is equally rebellion against God. And so what God calls us to as men and women, as the people of God, as a body, to be one as he and the Father are one as he prays in John 17. Listen to this. Jesus says, he's praying that they may, that's us. He prays not just for his disciples, but for us, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer here for us. And he's praying for a oneness in us. And that oneness is not a oneness attained by doing away with difference, with distinctions. That's why this passage applies to everything we've been talking about in this series. Everything in our lives, whether it's race, whether it's culture, whether it's our differences or our backgrounds or our personalities, whether it's a difference of our experiences, those things are wonderful. And when they're not sinful, they can be celebrated and enjoyed together. Our differences should be something we love and seek to celebrate when there's, when there's not sin at the core of those differences. Sometimes there is, but when they're just differences of, of race and, and background and culture and experiences and male and female, the differences is what makes the unity so beautiful. 
and so difficult and challenging at the same time. There's something so much easier about just needing to get along with people just like me. And I do think that's one of the attractions of, of homosexuality. It, on one level, it's easier to get along with someone who's of the same gender. Even that doesn't always happen very easily. But, but when we enter differences, it causes often divisions and difficulties. And that's what God wants to work in the midst of. In marriages, in families, fundamentally in the church, that there may be a oneness among us with our differences fully appreciated and celebrated and expressed, but with a oneness that we find in Christ that actually ends up reflecting who God himself is in himself. Those are my three points. Here's my one application. So, let's live as men and women to the glory of God and so that people will come to know the Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing grace, for your goodness to us as our creator who made us, knitted us together in our mother's wombs, every one of us, fearfully and wonderfully made, awesome, uh, breathtaking in what you've made, in your image, body and soul, male and female, for your glory and for the advance of the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for, for all of us this morning in the ways we each battle sin, in the ways we each are confused in a culture that is so unhelpful in getting clarity. But Lord, I pray that we as a church would be a place of clarity, of speaking the truth in love, of living this out in a way that's redemptive and beautiful and grateful and that enjoys you as we enjoy what you've created. Lord, we pray that you would be drawing us to yourself, that we would know you as you are and that we would become more and more reflective of who you are as those made in your image, male and female, for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.